need to confront the data as they are, not try to cover stuff up or hide risks. What does the most recent peer-reviewed research say about the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines? The logic that supports mandatory vaccination, that's no longer tenable. In this two-part episode, I sit down again with mRNA vaccine pioneer Dr. Robert Malone for a comprehensive look at the vaccines, repurposed drugs like ivermectin, and the ethics of vaccine mandates. Look at the logic of what we're confronting. That juggernaut has gotten so wrapped up around a consensus set of truths that are failing now. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Dr. Robert Malone, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Always my pleasure, Jan, and thank you for the chance to come back and visit. Well, uh, I want to kind of read you a few headlines that I've come across in the last few weeks, uh, you know, since since we since we did our recent interview um, and just, you know, give you a chance to kind of speak to them, perhaps. This is a drop head. Robert Malone claims to have invented mRNA technology. Why is he trying so hard to undermine its use? How, how do you react to this? So that's the Atlantic uh, um, hit piece. Uh, it was a very interesting article um, because it, it has a number of logic jumps in irregularities. And then it ends up kind of contradicting itself in the last paragraph and basically confirming that my assertions uh, about having been the originator of the core technology are valid. I'm subjected to this uh, meme that you didn't really do the things that you did in the late 1980s, almost continuously, usually from internet trolls. And so really, I think what the young author was picking up on in this was some internet memes that have been wrapped around uh, the prior press push that Katie Carrico and Drew Weissman were those that had originated the technology. Now that was that was um, clearly false, but it was very actively promoted by their university, uh, which holds a key patent, and then um, advanced through Stat News, Boston Globe, CNN, and then finally the New York Times. We challenged that, and in the case of of the New York Times, they actually recut their interview and podcast with Katie Carrico to cut out the parts where she had claimed that she was the original inventor. But how does how do I react to it? This this kind of pejorative use of language to cast shade, it doesn't really bother me. I I know what the facts are, and I have this massive amount of documentation. When people come at me with those things, I just say, hey, look, here, it's on the website, here are the documents, you can make your own assessment. The thing that bothers me about all of this, um, where they're personalizing character assassination on me and, and character attacks, is that it distracts from the issues. And it's not about me, the, this, this kind of chronic uh, um, questioning, why would I be saying things about the ethics of what's going on? Why would I be raising concerns about the safety signals? What I must have some ulterior motive. There's a, a an underlying theme to all this mm. 
that I must have some ulterior motive. And this particular journal journalist asked me again and again and again, trying to get at what was my ulterior motive for trying to undermine these vaccines based on my technology. It was so paradoxical. Was the push in a whole series of questions he raised with me. And um, I don't know what it says about journalism or what it says about our culture, that we always assume that someone must have an ulterior motive, that it's not sufficient to just be addressing an issue because it matters, it because it is the ethically correct thing to do. Um, it, it There seems to be this assumption that everybody's got an angle. I think it says more about the author than it says about me. And so this kind of casting shade and aspersions on me personally as a way to avoid addressing the underlying issues, I just see it as kind of noise and, and a little bit sad. And, and it's almost an affirmation. If the strongest they can come up with is to uh, try to attack and cast shade on whether or not I made a significant contribution that led to over nine patents um, during the late 1980s. Uh, if that's the worst they can throw at me, I think I'm doing pretty good. So that's how I see it. Well, so sure. So you're not trying, quote, so hard to undermine the use of this vaccine technology. No, it's that my concerns here as I said, I think, in our prior interview, is that there's been a series of actions taken, policies taken, uh, regulatory actions taken that are at odds with how I've been trained, with, with the norms as I've always understood them to be, the regulatory norms, um, the scientific norms. These things have been waived. And I, it, I think for a lot of people, it doesn't make sense. And what, recall reeling back, what triggered this was this um, amazing podcast uh, with Brett Weinstein and, and Steve Kirsch, where um, I don't think at that point in time, the world had really heard anyone questioning the underlying safety data assumptions um, and ethics of what was being done. There was a widespread sense of unease that these mandates and uh, forced, you know, efforts to force vaccination and uh, expedite the licensure of this and bring it and deploy it globally on the basis of uh, very abbreviated clinical trials. Uh, there was a widespread sense of uneasiness, but people didn't really have language to express it. And when that podcast happened, for some reason, it catalyzed global interest um, in a way that I didn't expect. That I still have people writing me. I just saw the Brett Weinstein Dark Horse podcast. Something happened there where, where events came together and... Uh, 
I expressed some things that I had just been observing that I felt anomalous in how the government was managing the situation and the nature of the vaccines and the testing of the vaccines and uh, the ethics of how they were being deployed and forced on, on children and other things in various countries, including the United States. And um, that that kind of triggered a whole cascade, but it wasn't because I have concerns about the technology or I'm casting shade on the technology. I've repeatedly made it clear that, in my opinion, these vaccines have saved lives. I get challenged on it all the time, by the way. There's, there's a whole cohort that says, oh, no, these aren't worth anything, and uh, they shouldn't be used at all, and they're not effective. In my opinion, they've saved a lot of lives, and they're very appropriate at this point in time. The risk-benefit um, favors administration of these vaccines, with even with all we've learned since that, in these few months since favors their administration to the elderly and the high-risk populations. So, as opposed, you know, contrary to this, this thread of, of I'm trying to denigrate these and tear them down, no, I'm trying to say I'm all in favor, strongly in favor, of ethical development and deployment of vaccines that are safe, pure, effective, non-adulterated. And... Uh, I'm really strongly dug in that we need to confront the data as they are, not um, uh, try to cover stuff up or hide risks or, or avoid confronting risks. The, the way that we get, in my opinion, to good public policy in, in public health is we, we not only recognize those risks, but we constantly take the position of looking forward, looking for leading indicators of risk, performing risk mitigation, and monitoring for black swans, unexpected events surrounding that. That's, that's where I come from, is continuing really strongly believing that the norms that have been developed over the last 30, 40 years in vaccinology should be maintained. We shouldn't jettison them just because we're having a crisis. Why don't we do kind of a review? There's been a number of very significant papers in my mind in the last week or two that have come out on, with very robust data sets telling us, uh, again, to my less educated eye, um, some very valuable information. And, you know, if you agree, maybe you can kind of review some of this for us. I know, I know you've been, you know, studying every one of these in, in some detail. The emergence of the Delta variant, whether, you know, originally in India and then subsequently in the UK and then spread to Israel, has really thrown the public health enterprise globally and, and in these other countries back. Because there were assumptions made about the effectiveness of the current vaccines and their ability to contain the outbreak. And, and I think there was kind of almost a social contract set up between the vaccine recipients and the governments and uh, public health authorities. And that, that social contract was, despite what you may have heard about the risks of some of these products and the fact that we admittedly did rush them, 
we're protecting your health. If you take these products, you will be safe. That's the social contract. Despite all these other concerns, you will be safe and you won't have to retake them. You'll be protected. It was kind of people believed they had a shield if they bought in and did this. And uh, Delta came along and suddenly that was no longer valid. The assumption that had been made, the social contract, was somehow broken. We found out first, if you'll recall, this cascade of events. We had Pfizer disclose that the durability, the length of time that the vaccine would provide protection, was not as expected. It was something like six months, and this came out of the Israeli data. And we, and just to be clear, protection, we're talking about protection from infection or protection from disease, because that's another... That is another whole another rabbit hole. And uh, it was, I think, really protection from infection and spread was the main parameter that was the concern with the six-month data. And uh, you may recall that that announcement was made unilaterally by Pfizer based on the Israeli data. And then immediately contradicted by Dr. Fauci, saying that this wasn't true and uh, Pfizer had no right to make these statements and he hadn't discussed it with him. Pfizer then apologized and backed down. And a week later, the U.S. government announced that in fact, we were gonna need to have boosters. And then there was the announcement that uh, the government had contracted to buy the boosters that were going to be deployed at eight months. And then more data came out. And uh, now, most recently, the government is saying, well, maybe we may have to have boosters at five months. And there was emergency use authorization that these, uh, this third dose would be deployed to elderly and immunocompromised. And now we're talking about everybody needing it. So this, this logic that uh, take the dose, take the two shots or the one shot for J&J, &J, and you'll be protected. And we'll get out of this because we'll reach herd immunity. And the whole problem is that we just don't have enough people that are being compliant with this. And we need to get, you remember, this goes back to July 4th. July 4th was the goal that we were going to have 70% vaccine uptake. Then we didn't meet that. And there was a lot of, of uh, kind of um, uncomfortableness with that. And then all of this new information is rolled out. And in particular, the Israeli data having to do with... Uh, the increasing number of infections and hospital uh, hospitalizations. And at first, it was positioned that this was only occurring in the unvaccinated cohort. And then it be that became increasingly untenable, and it became clear that it was occurring in the vaccinated cohort. And uh, then the same became true with the UK data set, which is stronger than the American monitoring system, and they do a lot more uh, sequence analysis. So now, now we had this paradox that um, those that had been vaccinated, um, whilst the data still suggests that they're largely protected from disease and death, 
and more protected than the unvaccinated from disease and death. They're no longer protected from infection. And, the, and it became clear within the data that and through multiple sources um, that the levels of virus replication in the individuals even who had been vaccinated previously was the same or higher as the levels of virus replication in those that had been unvaccinated and that those that had been vaccinated and had breakthrough infections, which is what we're talking about, um, were also shedding virus and able to, to spread virus. So then that raised the prospect that they were kind of the new super spreaders because they would have less apparent disease and yet still be shedding high levels of virus. Then we started to see some signs suggesting that um, there may be some differences in uh, the, the nature or onset or titers of disease in those that had been infected beyond six months after their vaccination points. So this is this waning phase. Um, so that, that kind of set a situation where I think a lot of folks were on edge. Uh, and there was still a lot of media pushing that it was the this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated, but that became increasingly untenable as the data rolled in. Then, you know, recently you've referred to this paper that came out. There was actually kind of three in a row that came out right after, almost immediately after the license uh, was issued uh, for the. BioNTech product. There was a paper published in New England Journal of Medicine that had an odd structure in which they related adverse events associated with the virus infection and a much more comprehensive uh, assessment of adverse events associated with the vaccines. And by juxtaposing these two data sets in the same manuscript, the case was made that, well, um, yes, we have these, this significantly enhanced spectrum of adverse events associated with the vaccine beyond what had been previously disclosed. We were all focused on the cardiotoxicity. But now additional adverse events, like then things that we discussed when we had our last uh, chat as, as apparent adverse events, these are now fairly well documented in this New England Journal article, things like viral reactivation. And so, so this is the shingles, uh, for instance. So um, there was an attempt to, or the, the paper attempts to make the case that, well, the vaccines have a lot of adverse events, but the disease has a lot of adverse events also, and it's worse. And oh, by the way, there's a lot of overlap between these adverse events associated with the disease and the vaccine, but the messaging was focused in that manuscript that it was it, it's it was far worse to get the disease than to have the adverse events associated with the vaccine. That's a little bit of a false analogy because the vaccine ostensibly would be deployed to 80 or 90 percent of the population. And, you know, in terms of of this wave of Delta, we might see something like 20 or 30 percent of the population infected if we're lucky. 
so then, you know, there's a, an imbalance of who's at risk with the vaccine versus who's at risk for the infection. But that was the construct. Okay. And just to be clear, um, where does this, and we, uh, what do you mean by 20 to 30% if we're lucky? And where did those numbers come from? Good. So uh, there is, I've seen data suggesting that the total population right now that's been infected in the United States is something about 20%. So of the total population, so the we don't have uh, that widespread of of uptake of infection in the U.S. or in the U.K. The U.K. data also shows those those kinds of numbers, and they're reflected in in um, a cohort that that have a, had a natural infection and recovered from that and then acquired the immune response associated with that. So it's seen in the numbers, for instance, in those cases where there is an accounting, such as in the Great Britain database, the British database, um, where they say the fraction of the population that's been vaccinated and then the fraction of the population that's acquired natural immunity. It's also covered in the CDC slide deck that was leaked. I don't think that was available when we had our last conversation. So there was this, uh, at the early outset, at the front edge of the Delta outbreak here in the United States, there was a, a key slide deck that was uh, disclosed to the Washington Post without approval by a CDC employee. And within that slide deck, it showed a a number of confidential internal assessments that weren't intended to be shared with the public. And that those assessments also included an estimate that uh, we had something like 50% of the population that had accepted vaccine at that point in time. And that in addition, there was something like 20% of the population that had been infected. So if you add those two, if you were to consider natural infection, as uh, providing some degree of protection against the virus, then we would move from something like 50% vaccine uptake to something like 70% of the population at that point in time that had actually acquired some form of immunity either through vaccination or infection. So that's the basis of my uh, seat of the pants estimate. Um, in addition, in the CDC slide deck, the, uh, the government revealed in two key slides that were kind of at the center of that deck um, that their epidemiologic calculations and projections were such that the um, reproductive coefficient of delta was something in the range of eight. There's other papers that suggest it's more like a little over five, but that it, it was as infectious as chickenpox approximately, which is highly infectious, mm -hmm. about two to three times more infectious than the alpha strain was. And based on those projections and some assumptions about the percent of the population that had been naturally infected um, and the percent of the population that had taken up vaccine and some assumptions about the effectiveness of mask use in protecting either an individual from being infected by a third party that wasn't using masks or protecting a third party from infection from somebody that was using a mask and was infected. There were a series of projection curves about how that could impact on the spread of the virus. And basically, when you work through those curves, what they demonstrated 
was that even if we had 100% vaccine uptake with these vaccines that the technical term is leaky, mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that do not provide perfect protection against uh, infection, um, that we would not be able to stop the spread of the virus through the U.S. population. We would slow it. Okay, so that's where those estimates come from. And uh, those, that's where that assessment uh, that is being ad used as the basis for advocating widespread mask uh, deployment throughout the United States, that's where that, that policy comes from, is that CDC analysis that uh, if, if we don't use masks, then the virus will spread quite rapidly. If we do have full compliance with masks use, we can slow it down a bit. And so that's, that's why we have these various mask mandates throughout the United States now. Fascinating. And well, actually, you're talking about natural, you started talking about natural immunity here. And so, frankly, I thought some of the most interesting, very robust data, at least to my eye, again, I, you're, you're I the agree. one who's going to be speaking on this. I agree. A lot of, a lot but, of people agree. It was covered in Science Magazine. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's still a preprint, but it was it was robust enough, well, well enough constructed um, that uh, even on the basis of the preprint, Science Magazine went ahead and made the clear point. And, and really throughout the world, uh, um, there was recognition that this new data coming out of Israel, as I recall, um, demonstrated that the term that's often used is natural immunity. Uh, it's an odd term. Uh, um, but it's now in common language. And what that means is protection afforded by having been infected and recovered from infection, which will generate a broad immune response. And it's now been shown in that paper and others that the breadth of that immune response in terms of T and B cell memory populations is more diverse and more long-lasting than the breadth of immune response elicited by the spike-based vaccines alone. Um, and then those data showed that you're alluding to is that this natural immunity is not only broader and more durable, which contradicted some studies that the CDC had developed. So we were in kind of tension, um, which is the real data, the CDC data, or these other papers that evaluated memory T and B populations. Um, you know, which, which is true. We have multiple truths or multiple uh, pieces of data in different groups claiming uh, one way or the other. And then this data dropped about the uh, evidence of protection. And... Uh, it seems to indicate, uh, consistent with the claims that the breadth and uh, durability of uh, the immune response was superior with the natural infection and recovery, there's also evidence that there's a significant, depending on the time frame, 6 to 20-fold improvement in uh, protection from infectious infection and disease associated with the uh, natural immunity uh, acquired from prior infection compared to that conferred by the vaccine. So now the public in their social contract with uh, the public health agencies is faced with a, the situation where they had been told 
uh, that natural immunity was not as protective, uh, that they can't rely on that, that if you've been previously infected, you should still get both doses of vaccine, uh, that this vaccination would provide broad, durable protection. Um, it would protect you and it would protect your elders uh, from uh, you potentially spreading disease to them. Now those things have all come into question. And, and I think the population is still reeling from that. I think that we're, we, we have kind of dug into these camps. My sense is that people haven't really fully processed what this means. It is profound. Now, I was, we were discussing before we started shooting that I had a, a long uh, podcast interview today and kind of advisory with a group of uh, uh, Latin American uh, physicians and scientists that were evaluating public policy for vaccine rollout versus early treatment options, etc., for the different cohorts that they have to protect. And they were expressing, you know, kind of seeing this data um, from the eyes of folks that haven't really had good access to vaccine but are facing the prospects that their countries could execute vaccine contracts and bring these vaccines in and asking the question, does this make sense for us? Is this good policy? Should our country invest in these RNA vaccines specifically is why they were talking to me. Um, and what are we gonna get for it if we do this? What's gonna be the benefit of our population? And um, it was a very level-headed discussion, but, uh, they were pushing me, you know, in this, getting back to this theme of I'm the vaccine skeptic. They were the ones pushing me saying, you know, we just don't see the value here for our populations. We don't see a compelling case when these products aren't stopping the spread. And they are going to have to be readministered fairly frequently if they're to be effective. Now, the other thing that kind of comes out of this that is, a, uh, I think, a concern that hasn't really, the, the World Health Organization hasn't really come to terms with. Um, I'm speaking, you know, CDC and WHO and, and the whole global infrastructure, including the Israeli government, which is now mandating a third jab. So in Israel, if you haven't received all three, you're not considered fully vaccinated. I think it's the. I think you have like a six-month window, if I'm not mistaken, or something Precisely. like that. Yeah. But one of the things about the Israeli data is that they vaccinated in such a bolus, in such a short push, because they have such a compliant population, that essentially they have a spike in vaccinated persons, and so they're all kind of moving concurrently through that six-month window now. So there was a pivotal interview with the director of the CDC. And she was asked, do we have any data? You know, do we have data or do we just have hope about the benefits of the third dose? And um, she, to her credit, acknowledged that we don't have data. All we have is hope. Here's the problem with that, is that vaccine responses are not linear. More is not better. Um, there are many cases where if you dose more or dose more frequently or move beyond a prime and a boost, 
you can actually quench the immune response. So you can move into, it's called high zone tolerance. You can move into a situation in which your um, immune responses drop. Now there's a, a little bit of foreshadowing on this in another paper that's out where they looked at the effects of vaccination post-infection. Remember, this was the policy that those like me that have been infected um, should go ahead and take two jabs, take two doses of vaccine. Which you did. Which I did. Yeah. Hoping that it would be helpful for long COVID. That data hasn't really played out that way. And there's a paper showing that you can actually quench T-cell responses. You get an improved kind of a super immune response in that manuscript, they assert, um, after um, a single dose when you've been previously infected. But with that second dose, your T-cell population actually gets quenched, which is consistent with high zone tolerance. So if that paper was to be expanded and, and uh, verified, with more robust numbers, it would suggest that one dose after natural infection would be a good thing. Two doses would be a bad thing. Now that's kind of the equivalent of three doses. If you think about it, natural infection being dose number one. So to say that we don't have any data, I think is a little misleading. We have some leading indicators that suggests that it might not be such a good idea. Now those data will come out from Israel and I think the conservative position to take is time will tell. And we will know um, because the Israelis continue to be in the throes of a very active Delta virus infection surge right now. now there's some other very intriguing tidbits going on here in this whole kind of public policy of vaccines versus no vaccines versus universal vaccines versus the Brighton position that we selectively vaccinate those that are at high risk and uh, provide others with great Barrington declaration. Yeah, Barrington, Barrington, yeah. I apologize. Mm -hmm. In that whole uh, matrix of decisions, in comes Sweden. And uh, you may recall that Sweden was roundly criticized for this uh, naive uh, notion that they weren't going to vaccinate, they were going to allow the virus to have its will with the population. And uh, they have backtracked from that now to be, um, you know, technically accurate. They have, I think, about 40% vaccine uptake. And they've acknowledged that that uh, position was naive and counterproductive. And they had excess deaths initially in the high risk cohorts. But what they did do was have a, a lot more natural infection with alpha and beta strains. And uh, now that Delta is moving through the region, uh, they have an extremely low mortality rate, often hitting zero on any one day, particularly in comparison to some of their neighbors that didn't take that policy, didn't have such widespread natural infection like Finland where they deployed a vaccine very avidly and had good uptake. And they're having the exponential growth rate curve that's happening in many other Northern European countries right now. 
Okay, so I'm just going to comment here. This is very interesting because you're interpreting this data a bit differently than, say, Dr. Martin Koldorf, who's himself from Sweden, right? His, his commentary in a recent interview we did was just simply that, you know, one, that, you know, there were no mandates of any sort ever in Sweden, yet their vaccine use is actually quite high. I, I think he said it's one of the higher uh, uh, th that exist. But he he didn't factor in this this time period that you said at the beginning, where there was uh, you know sort of this idea of uh, let, let the natural infections happen. So you're saying that you think the reason that these things are that their rates are zero mortality often, and they are, it's quite frankly remarkable, is because of that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that is it is a very reasonable explanation for what's happened there, and it's a differentiator between them and some of their neighboring countries, is they did have that early policy, and they did have fairly widespread infection. Hmm. Um, so that would be consistent with the data suggesting that natural infection is providing broader and more durable immunity. So this this gets to the kind of the logic of a selective deployment of vaccines. Uh, to those that are at highest risk. And uh, for that fragment of the population, uh, let's say below 65, depending on where you want to cut the line, 60, 65, 70, some people go down to 55, um, not providing vaccine coverage uh, to those individuals unless they're in a very high-risk population, morbidly obese, uh, immunologic deficiencies, etc., that that may be a more enlightened public policy, and by the way, one more consistent with uh, the WHO position that we still have limited vaccine supply, and it would be far more appropriate and equitable to deploy that vaccine supply more broadly, globally, to protect the elders in particular um, throughout the world rather than this uh, focus on universal vaccination now with a booster, a third booster, so a third dose. There's uh, been multiple statements of the WHO that they believe this is not ethical. Now, I had another interview today with a um, journalist podcaster who is from South Africa but living in France, so very aware of the French uh, resistance that's developing now to vaccines and all those protests. To, to, the, to mandates, I think, right? In yeah. particular, yeah. yeah. And his point was that if you look at this through the eyes of emerging economies, this uh, Western focus on universal vaccination of their populations and now third vaccine for their populations and unwillingness to share uh, the technology is a form of, he used the term imperialism, hmm. uh, hegemony, that, that the Western nations have access to this technology and these doses, and they're not willing to share it with the rest of the world. So I think we've got a series of things here where this kind of imbalance in distribution of of these vaccines as a resource is creating or exacerbating concerns that exist widely in economically disadvantaged countries that uh, there's just not a level playing field and um, we're all in this boat together with this disease hmm. and yet we're not uh, being equitable in distribu distribution of the countermeasures that are available.
Well, and I mean, this is fascinating because this, this is even as others that you're speaking with to are advising or asking, hey, do we even need these at this point? I mean, that's that Latin fascinating. American, yeah, I agree. So um, what does this mean? I don't know. What I sense is we're again in one of those moments where there's uh, chaos. Um, there's lack of structure and, and uh, consensus about how to move forward. And my sense is, you know, getting back to the U.S. government, that, that we're in a position now where a lot of the core assumptions uh, underlying the vaccine strategy have been called into question. And we don't really know what's on the other side. And then on top of that, it's becoming increasingly apparent that these repurposed drugs and other agents that could provide protection and mitigate death and disease if they were deployed early in outpatient environments, access to those are being actively suppressed. And that's another one of those, this doesn't make sense kind of problems that's uh, causing a lot of questioning about the motivations of those that are guiding public policy right now. Coming up in part two of this American Thought Leaders episode, what does the data actually say about repurposed drugs such as ivermectin? And how might universal vaccination policies actually backfire and drive the emergence of escape mutants? When we deploy antibiotics unnecessarily and very widely, we know that we develop antibiotic-resistant bacteria. The same concept applies in vaccinology with viruses. 